Welcome back and thanks for joining us once again. After a brief hiatus for the summer holidays, we are back in action on the Hot Topics podcast. I hope you managed to get a bit of a break and a refresh over the summer. I think we all needed that after a large slog for the last six months. And I certainly felt very grateful for a two-week break, which felt quite luxurious, even if it was in the UK. I say luxurious. At one point, we found ourselves on a beach in the cold, in a gale force winds with a sandstorm. And I just couldn't understand why the kids were crying so much. Slowly, it dawned on me that the painful sand battering my lower legs was, of course, at head height for them and was practically peeling the skin from their faces. We ended up hunkering down behind some rocks, coats on, hoods up, holding each other for warmth. And I thought to myself, this is what classic family memories are made of. Bloody pandemic. It is Friday, the 18th of September, 2020, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. So thanks for joining us. Welcome back. This is season two of the Hot Topics podcast. To be honest, it's a basically irrelevant term. I can call it whatever I like. But now that we've been running for almost a year and we've done 20 episodes, I find myself struggling to remember exactly what number we're on. Although it seems that most of the population can't even count to six, judging by the interpretation of the government's new recommendations. I'd love to get all holier than thou about it, but as a family of four, who's really good friends with lots of other families of four, six is a really tricky number. I like to think that if you can put one of your kids on the other kid's shoulders and they're still shorter than an adult, that maybe counts as three. Now in season two, we're going to have some interviews with some of the leading researchers, academics and primary care movers and shakers. But fundamentally, things haven't changed. So today we're going to have a look at the news. We're going to do a bit of a COVID update and then have a look at some of the other research that's been published of interest to us in primary care over the last month. Now, first thing in the news, and it would be remiss of us not to talk about that letter. So NHS England primary care top brass feel the need to remind us that we need to be ensuring patients can have face-to-face appointments. Face-to-face appointments, you say? Well, that is a good idea. It's as if we aren't all terrified about the impending cancer crisis as a result of delayed presentations or the fact that even assessing a child with a probable ear infection is now one of the greatest logistical challenges or the fact that I'm not allowed more than six people in my waiting room due to social distancing rules. We've all still been doing face-to-face consultations throughout the whole pandemic. So if the public don't think that GP practices are open, that's because of the way the media has portrayed us. And make no mistake, this letter was not for us. This letter was for the media. It was interesting reading Pulse's editorial this week, in which it explained how the letter had been sent out to the media under an embargo on the Friday to it be released to us on the Monday giving the media plenty of time to make an absolute shitstorm out of it. 
I suspect there may be some genuine reports from people that they're struggling to get face-to-face appointments. But if this is a tiny minority of individual surgeries refusing to do face-to-face appointments, then NHS England could very easily just go and have a chat with those individual practices. There may even be very good reasons why they're struggling to deliver face-to-face appointments, in which case what they need is support, not threats and regulation. If this is complaints from patients just being disappointed that they can't automatically get a face-to-face appointment, then sad reality is they're going to have to get with the programme in the current situation. For me at the moment, probably about 25% of phone calls end up requiring some face-to-face assessment. Most of these patients will get it on the day, all of them within a week. None of them will wait more than a handful of minutes in the waiting room now. The reality is, it's a better service than it was six months ago. So we don't need to be patronised. We're doing a good job and I still find it so difficult to understand what's the end goal of all this negative media spin. If you damage people's faith in primary care, then you undermine what can make it such an effective tool. You will see more people go straight to A&E. You will see more delayed presentations. The health service will become less efficient, not more. Now, another service that's had a pretty tough time over the last couple of weeks is the education system. I know that many of you at home have children and will have been running the gauntlet over the last couple of weeks. Just like general practice, schools have done an amazing job at restructuring themselves so that they can try and accommodate pupils. But maybe in hindsight, we could have predicted what was going to happen in the first week of school. After six months of very little exposure to their peers and limited exposure to circulating pathogens, they dropped like flies. Four days it took my kids to develop a fever and a cough. We were self-isolating, desperately trying to get a coronavirus test. We managed to get one at the local drive-thru. And the following day, we got one negative result. And the older one, inconclusive. Oh man, that is never something you want to see come through on a text message, an inconclusive result. And I know exactly why it happened. So we had to do the swabs ourselves. I'd consider myself relatively proficient at taking swabs. It's a pretty simple skill. And having twizzled it a few times up my kid's nostril, it came out with this massive plaque of green bogey on it. I looked at it at the time and thought, I'm not sure that's going to be any good briefly considered picking it off, but then the testing lady was looking through my car window and giving me a big thumbs up. Into the bottle it went. The problem was the next day was when no one could get a test for love nor money. I was awake at 4.30 in the night and thought I'd chance it on the website. Aberdeen or Inverness I could go to. It may have taken me less time to just self-isolate. Thankfully, I got a tip off that we could just walk into our local walk-in test centre. That sounds obvious, but in fact, you are meant to book. But if they're not busy, they'd check you. I got lucky because that service does not exist this week. And thankfully, the next day, we got our all negative result. But this is going to happen so much over the next four, five, six months, over the whole winter period. Kids going to be going off with illnesses. We're going to be self-isolating with them. We're all desperate to get a test. Speaking to our local head teachers, she tells me that some of the children being sent back into school, having been assessed by their GP and being told, don't worry, that's not a COVID cough. Assuming this report is true, I think that's a pretty bold stance to take from any GP. There is definitely nothing that currently reliably allows us to differentiate between a simple ERTI and COVID in children. Indeed, the latest guidance for parents from the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health states that 
Um, there appears to be little in the way of clinical signs in children to differentiate COVID-19 from other childhood respiratory virus illnesses. And COVID-19 has been detected in combination with other viral and bacterial infections. Indeed, the most common presenting features presented in more than 50% of cases are cough and fever, that we know. And then symptoms such as a sore throat and runny nose occur in 30 to 40% of patients. But one of the problems we've got is competing data. So there was reports a couple of weeks ago from the UK COVID symptom tracker study, which published the most common features in children were fatigue, headache and fever, all of which were occurring in around half of children who had COVID. Having a sore throat and being off their food was also high upon the list. The problem with all of these symptoms is this, what, this is what all kids do when they get a febrile illness. So still we have nothing that can reliably differentiate COVID from more traditional illnesses. Meanwhile, they also note that a third of children were entirely asymptomatic. God only knows what we do with this information, but my best advice is probably just try not to worry about it too much because worrying won't help. Now, while we're on the subject of COVID, why don't we do a quick COVID update? So what has the scientific community discovered in the last few weeks that we need to know about COVID-19? Well, there have now been several case reports of reinfection. This is obviously bad news, although the actual reports are very, very small. We're talking just a handful. And interestingly, it seems to be linked with coronavirus, which has mutated from its original form, as we see happens with viruses quite commonly. And that antigenic shift is enough to fool our immune system. The good news, however, is that that antigenic shift actually is very, very small. The rates of mutations arising in coronavirus um, is much lower than you would see in something like flu. The implication of which is that if you do get exposed to the virus for a second time, it probably hasn't changed much. And so your immune system will probably be able to respond to it quite effectively. The other thing that we've learned is that one of the reasons that coronaviruses don't seem to have this same level of antigenic shift that we see for some other viruses is that their mechanism of evolving is forming a chimera with other viruses. And this is particularly likely with ones that are quite closely related to them, such as SARS and MERS. So while the chance of this happening is really very low, it has to happen within some living vessel in the same way that this one has come out of bats in China. If it does happen, we could have a whole nother pandemic on our hands. Another new interesting bit of research was just published in JAMA today. And that was a nice little study from America where they followed up 250 healthcare workers who were positive for um, SARS-CoV-2 and looked at what happened to their antibodies over the next 60 days. And it found that 58% of them lost their measurable antibodies over that time period. Now, this doesn't really tell us whether they are more likely to then get reinfection. I think we all now appreciate that there's more mechanisms at play here than blood tests can measure easily. But it might explain why if you had your antibodies tested in the last couple of months when you thought you had coronavirus at the start of that pandemic, why that result was negative. And it further cements the importance that if someone is presenting with features of long COVID, we're talking about long COVID a lot in the new Hot Topics course that's coming up next week, then it highlights the importance of acknowledging that they can still have long COVID, even if they've had negative tests. Now, maybe we should have a look at some non-coronavirus research. 
Now, we could talk about a new meta-analysis in The Lancet, which combines the DAPA HF study and Emperor Reduce study results, looking at the SGLT2 inhibitors in respect to cardiovascular and renal outcomes in patients who've got heart failure with or without diabetes. Now, I take great pity on researchers who do meta-analysis, looking at hundreds of different trials, trying to collate often quite heterogeneous data into some meaningful synthesized outcome that potentially represents months and months of their lives and a job that I'm fairly sure I never, ever want to do, even though I'm very grateful for it. If I was those researchers, I'd feel just a little bit cheated by a meta-analysis of just two studies making it into one of the world's biggest journals. It barely sounds like a meta-analysis, but the author's justification was that both of these studies alone were not large enough to provide meaningful answers to whether the SGLT2 inhibitors actually had an effect on cardiovascular death or all-cause mortality. In the initial studies, they looked at a composite endpoint. The bottom line was that in 8,500 patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, the SGLT2 inhibitors reduced all-cause mortality by 13% and uh, cardiovascular mortality by 14%. They decreased the number of hospitalizations and increased the time to first episode of hospitalization, and they improved renal outcomes as well. Make no mistake about it, SGLT2 inhibitors are the next big thing. We will be prescribing them in diabetes, heart failure, renal disease, who knows what else. Let's just hope that they do deliver on their promises and we don't find ourselves in the position in a few years' time of having to get all of our patients on these drugs, off these drugs, because something unpleasant has come to light. Now, it's reasonable to say that there hasn't been a huge amount of groundbreaking research that I've seen in most of the major journals over the last few weeks, but I have been yet again very pleasantly surprised by some great stuff that's come out of the latest BJGP. Ten years ago, this journal was the butt of many clinicians' joke, but make no mistake about it, this is probably the world's leading primary care journal, and I think it is going from strength to strength. And I wanted to highlight three studies published this month that really celebrate the brilliance of general practice and us as clinicians. So firstly, we've got a systematic review and meta-analysis of data on the role of GPs' gut feelings in diagnosing cancer in primary care. I remember back when I was a registrar uh, over 10 years ago now, so this summer was my 10th anniversary as a fully qualified GP. And I saw this middle-aged guy who came in just describing a couple of months of persistent facial pain. And whether it was the fact that he didn't come in much, whether it was the fact that he was a smoker, whether it was the fact that he was a bit skinny, even though he'd not lost any weight, my gut instinct told me that there was something nasty going on here. And even though he didn't meet any particular criteria at that point, I referred him for a scan and it found that he had a nasopharyngeal carcinoma. So gut instinct is something that's very hard to quantify, but is made of something intrinsic within us, which is then supplemented by years of clinical exposure. And as such, it's something that we should not ignore. And this meta-analysis shows that when you include gut instinct in our clinical assessment, cancer diagnoses were four times higher. Of course, we know that these rapid diagnostic clinics which are popping up all around the country, one of the 
key referral criteria there is GP concern. Nothing more, just your gut instinct. And it's there because the data is quite clear. This is a very valuable resource. Just while I remember, in fact, we're going to cover quite a lot of cancer topics on the new Hot Topics course as well. But if you're looking for a bit of an update on how we can meet our practice requirements for the Quaff Cancer Quality Improvement Domain and for the PCN DES, then join us on the 13th of October in the evening for a free live webinar in conjunction with Cancer Research UK. We are back to box ticking, but we can tell you how to do it simply, effectively and make a meaningful improvement for your patients. Now, the next piece of research is another systematic review, but this is looking at medical care continuity and patient mortality. So continuity in primary care has definitely taken a hit over the last decade. I'm as much as part of the problem as any. I'm only in the practice two days a week. So it's very challenging to follow up patients in a timely fashion and hand over patients that maybe need to be follow up, followed up later in the week. The reality with modern general practice is that virtually no one could sustain it for five days a week. Most of us will be spending time on our, in inverted commas, days off, desperately trying to catch up with emails and admin. Don't even get me started on fire safety modules and the like. So it's no surprise that most of us are not working all week and that continuity has taken a bashing. Anyway, this paper shows that reduction in mortality can be added to the list of benefits for good continuity in primary care, with the greatest benefit being in those patients who have significant disease or chronic disease. Improved clinical responsibility, physician knowledge and patient trust were suggested as the causative mechanisms which neatly segues into the third study, study which examined continuity and patients' perceptions of GP trust and respect. Now, continuity from the GP perspective means that we get to know the patient well and we understand what their problems are and that facilitates our management of them. From the patient perspective, continuity helps with trust, crucial element to healthcare. And as part of that, patients very much see continuity as a safety issue, as this paper acknowledges. So sure, this paper highlights the benefits of continuity, which we want to try and preserve where we can. But it also tells us that if we're seeing people that perhaps we don't know very well, one of the things we can do is trying to demonstrate trust in that patient. It might just be what makes that consultation much easier and much more successful. So that is it from me. Thanks for joining us once again. We'll be back in three weeks' time, all being well, with more of the latest news and research in primary care. In the meantime, check out the mbmedical.com website. We've got a new Hot Topics course that will be running live next Friday on the 25th of September. We'll be doing it again in October, but you can watch on demand anytime as well. And do have a look at NB+. For either a monthly subscription of less than £30 or for £320 for a year. I had to double check those figures. I'm sure the office made a typo. But you can get access to everything on the mbmedical.com website. All of the courses, you can watch them live or on demand. All of the educational modules that we've done, lots more besides. Sounds like a bargain. In the meantime, look after yourself. Stay well. As Phil Hammond says, remember to have five bits of fun a day. Please do contact us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics, on Facebook or via email. So hottopics at mbmedical.com. If you are a researcher 
or a GP with a special interest and you do have some important and interesting work to share, then please do let me know. Maybe we can set up an interview and you might be on one of the next podcasts. In the meantime, thanks for joining us once again. Bye-bye.